I want you to think about, just take a moment and imagine in your mind uh, what, what the image is of God's good plan for your life working out. Okay? What does it look like for the good plan of God for your specific life to work out? Just take a minute and think about it. Just imagine that. I want you to think about the elements that are involved there. God's good plan unfolding for you. I imagine for a lot of you, it's thinking immediately, like, I want to pass this final, right? I want to make it through this class. I want to graduate. I want to have a job whenever I get done. Those are all good things. I imagine for a lot of you, there's a desire to be in a specific place, doing a specific thing, using the gifts that God has given you. And I imagine for some of you, there's a desire to see God's will and God's plan advance in your life and the people's lives around you. And that's the same thing for me. That's, that, those are the places we tend to go. But I want you to consider, is suffering, shame, rejection, ridicule, even facing the risk of death for the sake of Jesus, is that a part of what factors into God's good plan for you? That's a little bit different. You see, as a church, I think we do a really good job of putting before you week after week this element. God is good. God is for you. God loves you like a father. And there is nothing, nothing that can change that. He is for your good. That is a key and fundamental aspect of our faith as Christians. But there's something that needs to be paired along with that for us to reflect the Bible clearly and to reflect Jesus clearly. And that's that suffering, shame, even facing the risk of death is a part of following Jesus. And these things are not contradictory. These things are not opposites in God's good plan for you. That's something that just I'm wrestling to understand, let alone live out. I'm just wrestling to understand that. And I know it's the same thing for you guys. And so the reason that's important is when, when it comes to push and shove, whenever there is a situation where choosing to follow Jesus, choosing to be devoted to God brings about suffering, brings about difficulty, brings about ridicule or rejection, or even in the most extreme of cases, a risk to your life. In that moment, if you don't have that concrete belief that, yes, God is good and for me, and sometimes following Jesus means suffering, if those things are not wedded together in your mind, you will be tempted to believe, this cannot possibly be God's plan for my life. I need to back up and head a different direction. And that is not at all the path that Jesus walked, and that is not at all the path that he calls us to walk. And so this is a conversation that our good loving father wants to have with us he wants to root in our hearts that the king of glory the anointed king of god walk the path yes to life yes to resurrection yes to victory and joy and peace but the path through that was one of suffering and death the path to life and glory leads to the valley of the shadow of death that's true for our king, and it's true for us. So I want you to go ahead and pick up your Bibles. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8. And it's going to be a long text. 
<clears throat> there's going to be a lot of questions that pop up in your mind. They pop up in my mind. I'm not going to be able to answer them. Uh, we're going to focus really just on one idea. It's going to be from verse 22 in chapter 8 all the way through 9:13. And the idea here is this, that Jesus, the anointed king, walks a path through suffering and death to glory. And his disciples are called to follow him on that path. So Jesus, the anointed king, walks a path, yes, to glory and life, but it's through suffering and death. And his disciples are called to follow him on that path. Let's go ahead and pick it up in verses 22 through 26. Here we're going to see a healing miracle that symbolizes the, sp the spiritual growth of the disciples. Okay, Verse 22. And Jesus and the disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And so Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and the man opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So here we have a unique miracle. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things that stand out. Uh, if you haven't noticed, this is the first healing of a blind person in the Gospel of Mark. We've seen healing of paralyzed people. We've seen uh, a healing of a woman with a flow of blood. We've seen a raising of a dead girl. We've seen numerous different kinds of healings. But this is the first specifically of a blind man. Uh, that's important because healing a blind man, restoring sight to a blind man was viewed as one of the most difficult things anybody could ever do. Rabbis who, who did healings in the, in the ancient world said, um, you could raise somebody from the dead before you could do this. They said only God and only his promised anointed one who's going to come could restore sight to the blind. This is how hard it's viewed. And so part of this healing miracle is showing who Jesus is and the power that he has. He is the anointed one that people would talk about. He is the one who has the very power of God to restore sight to the blind. And so there's a, there's a historical reality. This guy was healed. He received his sight back. There's also another weird thing about this. Um, this is the only time, this is so weird, this is the only time that a healing happens in two stages, right? So Jesus spits on the guy's eyes, which uh, don't even get me started on that. That's weird, strange, I don't understand. Apparently saliva was used medicinally as well as in healing rituals back in the ancient world. Seems really weird to me and probably to you too, but apparently it was a little bit more normal then, okay? Um, but, so he spits on his eyes and he lays his hands on him, and then he says, can you see? And the guy looks around and he says, I can see sort of. I see people walking, but they look like trees. So apparently he knows what people look like. He had sight before and he lost it. But it's only partial sight that's restored. And then Jesus lays his hands on him again. And in a second stage, he's fully healed. This is very purposefully placed in the book of Mark. Because it's sim symbolizing the spiritual sight of the disciples growing. Okay? Right in the story, right preceding, Jesus basically looked at the disciples in frustration and said, Are you spiritually blind? Right? They were just in the boat. They had just finished seeing Jesus feed 5,000 people with like a few loaves of bread. And they had seen Jesus feed 4,000 people with just even fewer loaves of bread. And they get in the boat and they only have one loaf. 
And all of a sudden, they're freaking out. And they're saying, well, why did you drop that? We're not going to have any food. And Jesus looks at them, and he says in verse 17, if you flip up in chapter 8, he says, <clears throat> why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Are you spiritually insensitive? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Basically, you were blind and you were deaf in a spiritual sense. This is a problem for the disciples. And right after that, we have this unique healing miracle of a blind man that happens in two different stages. This is exactly what Jesus is doing with the disciples. He's trying to help them to understand who he is, what that means for him, and what that means for them. They don't understand that right on the front end. And that is a messy process of growing to see who Jesus is, what that means for him, and what that means for them. So this healing miracle kind of introduces a step in the process that they're going to start to see Jesus a little bit more clearly, not perfectly, but a little bit more clearly. So let's go ahead and move on to this next section, verses 27 through 30. We're going to see that the disciples finally see what we've known all along because Mark told us, that Jesus is the anointed king of God. They're going to finally come to recognize that, but they're going to see that he's not quite what they had in mind, okay? Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the anointed king. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. James, yes, Daniel, we'll talk about that in a second. So it's, it's clear that the masses, the majority of people see Jesus and they, they feel that he's a mighty prophet. He's either John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets. But there's consensus at least on the fact that he is a mighty man of God, a prophet. And so they recognize that. Jesus hears this and he says, okay, but you've been with me. You've seen me do great works that have symbolic value. You've heard me teach. You've been with me day after day. You know me better than anybody else. Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forward and on behalf of all the disciples says, you are the Christ. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of the semester, we opened with the book of Mark. And we talked about that word Christ. Mark 1.1 says this, the beginning of the good news, the gospel, of Jesus Christ. And at that point, I, I talked to you about that title. We tend to use that as a name for Jesus. Um, later on in the Bible, it's used so regularly of Jesus that it almost becomes his last name. But it's not really a last name. He's not Jesus of the Christ family. He is the anointed king. That's what that word means. Um, how many of you guys have been watching that show, The Crown, on Netflix? Okay, there's a few. I didn't expect a ton, but hey, there's a few of us in here. Okay, um, so there's a scene in the show called The Crown where Queen Elizabeth is being enthroned. And part of her enthronement ceremony is where the bishop of the archbishop of the Church of England comes up with holy oil, and he anoints her on her head, on her chest, and on her hands. And this is like the key part of her becoming queen. 
what this is showing is that she is God's monarch on the earth. She has his favor. She executes his will. That's part of the ritual in the kingdom of England. But this is biblical. This goes way back to the Old Testament. This is exactly what they would do with kings in the Old Testament. Messiahs were kings who were anointed with oil to show that they are the ones who are God's kings. They are the ones who work out God's will upon the earth. That's at least what they're supposed to do. And so this title, Christ, is a king terminology. And Israel had been lacking a king for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they've looked forward to one who would be their king. Okay. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he's doing things that introduce the kingdom of God. And yet people aren't quite seeing that this is who he is. The disciples see it, though. And I want you to look at verse 30 again. It's just a weird reaction to have. So this is a high point. The disciples see something good. Jesus is the anointed king of God. And then how does Jesus respond? He says, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The words there are very powerful. It's the same word that's used whenever Jesus rebukes demons. <laughs> they strictly charged them, tell no one about me. Why, why would that be? Part of the reason is that there's a great gap in what Christ means between what people think and what Jesus is actually here to do. You see, the people have expected a political, a political conqueror, someone who's going to come in, who's going to wreck shop on all the oppressors of the Jews, and is going to raise Israel back up to a place of power and glory in the world. That basically Rome was going to be defeated and then become the slaves of the Jews. That's what they expected. So when they heard Christ, they're like, it's time, let's do it. They're ready to go. They're ready for revolution. And so for somebody to hear that, could very, very quickly get taken off track. You could be in a bad spot very quickly. And Jesus says, people are not ready to hear that because they don't understand what that means. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the anointed king? What does it mean for him to be the Christ? And what then does that mean for his followers? He's going to tell us in these next verses, 31 through 38. Jesus takes the disciples and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, again, that's king terminology. If you're here this morning, Kyle usually preached on that. This is the eternal kingdom of God's king. Eternal king of God's kingdom, yeah, that's it. Um, so he's using a different title with the same sort of meaning. Begin to teach them that the Son of Man might, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, all the important people in Israel, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, openly, bluntly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And turning and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me 
and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. As the anointed king of God, Jesus is walking a path through death and through suffering to glory, to victory, to joy and peace. It's a pathway to victory, but it goes through the valley of death. And that's not true just for Jesus. That's also true for those who are going to follow him, for his disciples. And so it's very clear that Jesus, in his explanation of what that means for him to be the Christ, is completely blowing up their categories. He says, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And immediately Peter's like, no, 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 no. And takes him around the shoulder, walks him over to the corner and says, look, man, that's not what it means for you to be the king. That's not what it means for Israel to be raised to glory. You cannot be saying these things. This is not what the scriptures teach. And Jesus looks him in the eye and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Which is a crazy statement, right? I mean, he goes from like the mountain peak, you are the Christ. All right, you got it. To like right down to the lowest point. Get behind me, Satan. Um, what's going on there? If you look back and you see Jesus being confirmed as the Son of God in the beginning of the Bible, or in the beginning of the book of Mark, at the baptism, this is my beloved Son, right with that is the temptation of Satan. Right with that is this temptation to take the easy path to glory. In other Gospels, Satan says, you don't have to walk this path of suffering and death. I can give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you just worship me. You don't have to gain all that power by walking this path that God has set out for you. Just take the easy way. And again, Satan is using the voice of Peter here to try to take Jesus astray. No, 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 no. You are the Christ. You don't suffer. You're not going to be rejected. You're not going to be killed. That's not your path. And immediately Jesus sees it and says, no. This is the plan that God has given me. This is the way to glory. It's through suffering. It's through rejection. It's through death. And then he turns and he looks and he says, this is true not only for me. This is true for all of you who would follow me. He doesn't say that just to the disciples the 12, 30, 34, he actually calls the crowd, the people who are gathered around, and he says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For Jesus, kingship goes hand in hand with suffering, with difficulty, with rejection, even with death. For him, the fact that God is good, he's merciful, that he's loving, is not contradictory to the fact that he calls his servants to walk through difficult things in this earth. Because this earth is broken, and this earth, this world, and its systems hate God and hate the people of God. He understands that kingship means suffering, death, on the way to glory. And he calls his followers to take the same path. <clears throat> That phrase, take up your cross and follow me. We tend to water that down in our culture a little bit. When we think about the cross, it's easy for us in the Bible Belt to think of jewelry 
or decorations on a wall. Uh, We might think of hope and peace and joy, which are good, bright things to think of whenever we think of the cross. That's only a part of it. And it's certainly not the things that would have been in the mind of the disciples at this point. When Jesus says, take up your cross, this is language that would have pierced their ears. It would have punched them in the gut. It would have made them feel a little bit sick. You see, crucifixion was a very common thing at this point in history. And the Romans had actually made an art form out of torturing and shaming their victims. They ruled large swaths of territory. And whenever there was a revolution in that territory, what they would do is they would come in quick and mercilessly and they would clamp down. And all of their enemies, all the men, they would line them up along the roads going into towns in the area that they had conquered again. And they would strip them naked. They would beat them to a bloody pulp and they would nail them to trees all along the way for miles and let them suffer for days. Screaming, crying, naked in agony, all to show that Rome is your authority. And don't you dare try to push against that. That's what crucifixion is about in the ancient world. It's often not really talked about in texts because it's just repugnant to people. They don't even want to mention it. But there are a couple quotes from people in the ancient world who do talk about crucifixion. One guy named Josephus says it's the most wretched of deaths. Another guy named Pseudo-Manicho says it's the most bitter torment. A guy named Cicero says it's the worst extremes of tortures inflicted upon slaves, the lowest of the low. And it's a most cruel and disgusting penalty. And so I, I, I say all that because... That's what the disciples are hearing whenever Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. This is not endure a little bit of difficulty as you follow me. Sacrifice a little bit along the way. This is Jesus saying, you will be shamed by people as you follow me. That's out of the, I mean, that's not even a question. You will be shamed. And many of you will face the risk of death as you follow me. You need to know that on the front end basically what he's telling them. And he's saying that to the crowd. Disciples are called to walk the same path that their king walks. Yes, it's a path ultimately that leads to life, to glory, to victory, to peace, to reigning in the kingdom of God. But to get there, one has to go through the valley of the shadow of death. They follow their king on that path. So the costly call to follow Jesus is not something that's just limited to the Jews that he was speaking to in that crowd on that day. This is something for us today. The pathway of following Jesus to life and to glory, that's the end goal, goes through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's just hard to say that. It's hard to hear that. It's hard to let that sink in and actually live in light of that. Honestly, for so many of us, what we've done is we've taken a form of Christianity that says this. Your life might be pretty good overall here in the West. Right? You have financial needs provided. If you, you know, if you don't, you're working towards that. Relationships, we want those to be good. All these different pieces of your life, you want to get just so. But there's this part of you that needs to be fulfilled, and it's going to be only fulfilled by God. And so what we have is this picture of an ice cream sundae. You have your ice cream, you have your chocolate, you have your nuts, and whatever else you put on an ice cream sundae, but God is the cherry that 
on top of your ice cream sundae. He completes the perfect experience. That's what many of us have walked into churches expecting. That's what many of us have sat in churches thinking what the Christian life is about. And the problem with that is that it leaves no room for suffering on the way of following Christ, enduring shame as a result of being a faithful disciple of Jesus, following God even when it hurts. So this is one of those difficult times where the Father just has to remind us, yes, you are headed to life and to glory and to peace. Come on. And on the way, there's difficulty. On the way, there is shame. And on the way, there are threats. And so we just need to let that kind of settle in. Because there will come a time whenever we will be challenged. And if that is not set in your heart and in your mind, that this is a part of God's call for your life, and it doesn't contradict the fact that he's good, it doesn't contradict the fact that he's merciful, and that he loves you, and that he has a good plan for you. It's part of that plan. God is good. And there is difficulty and suffering involved in following Jesus. These things are together. And they should never be torn apart. So as we kind of walk through this idea, I just have a couple things to help us to think through it. I just want to walk through a couple examples of what this could even look like. Right? What would it look like to go through the valley of the shadow of death in order to come to the other side as a disciple of Jesus? A simple thing that I don't think any of us can avoid is just sticking to what is true is becoming more and more unpopular in our culture, right? Like, to believe the things that this book says is culturally offensive. And I'm not saying, like, give everybody the finger and say, God is right. I'm just saying, like, if you believe what God says, that's going to be a problem for a lot of people around you. And if you stick to it in your life and if you stick to it in what you say, That's going to be a problem for a lot of people around you. We shouldn't be offensive to people on purpose to cause a stir. We should recognize, though, that sticking to what is true is unpopular in our culture and will only be more so as we continue to go. And I'm not one of those doom and gloom where we've just lost the glory days and now we're in the pit of hell in America. This has always been true in different cultures. This has always been true. It is unpopular to cling to the word of God and live on the basis of it. Don't be surprised whenever people are upset and frustrated at you and ridicule you and mock you. Another example, I've I've met several people in churches that I've been a part of in the past where being a Christian professional has has been not beneficial for them, honestly. People have been in certain situations where they're expected to lie, to cheat, and basically steal in order to make money for the company. And they've had to say, look, because of my faith, I can't do that. Like, what you were asking me to do as a part of this job, I, I cannot and will not do that. And in cases, they've said, all right, well, there goes your promotion. And in other cases, they've said, all right, well, there goes your job. You'll be looking for a new one soon. This could be some of you. And it's not to be feared. It's not to be discouraged. In the midst of that, it's to recognize that the God of the universe is preparing you for the day when that might be the case, and he will carry you through that. He will carry you through that. He's letting you know up front, this is a difficult call. There will be people that you are not popular with. There is sacrifice along the way, but endure because there's a good goal that you're headed toward. 
throughout history, I mean, the most extreme example is Christians actually losing their lives. We look back at the apostles, the early Christians, and the state came against them and said, recant your faith or die. And many, many of them chose to stand true, to stand firm. And this has been the case scattered throughout history and across the world. Guys, even in our day, this is happening right now. As you think North Africa, Iraq, Syria, this is not a theoretical thing. Take up your cross, follow me, be prepared to die. This is going on for Christians right now. It's insane to me to think that within the past three years, Christians have been crucified for loving and not rejecting Jesus. Like I just read a, a story the other day, and it just convicted the crap out of me. I was just struggling with being a pastor, and I thought about my challenges, and I read a story about a, a pastor in Iraq whose hawk had been massacred, whose church had been burned. And I'm like, I got nothing to worry about, you know? My, my, my difficulties don't even compare to that. And I'm not shame, saying that to shame myself or anything. I'm just saying that it's a reminder to me that this is a hard path that the Lord has called us to walk at times. There's sacrifice involved in the good, loving, merciful plan of God for you. It does not contradict his character. It does not contradict what he wants to do in you and through you. It's exactly a part of what he wants to do in you and through you. So to encourage you to think through, like, how do you even begin to accept this? Like, how do you even begin to breathe this in and let this shape the way that you think about your life? One thing to be thinking about is as you are perfectly loved, you are freed to give yourself up. As you are fully and perfectly loved, you're free to give yourself up. As I, I found this to be true and true and true in greater degrees in, in marriage. I've been married to my sweet wife, Amy, for, for five years and was told on the front end before we got married that marriage is going to involve sacrifice and difficulty. That's typical for Christians, right? Um, people who are not believers will tell you, like, good luck with that. It's going to suck. And Christians will be like, it's going to be hard. It's part of it, but, you know, that's part, that's part of the deal, and God's going to use it to sanctify you. And so I knew that theoretically, but getting into marriage and actually recognizing that there are preferences you lay down, there are things that you give up, there are ways that you will be misunderstood and you will not be understood at the end of the conversation. On and on I could go. There are sacrifices that you make for the one that you love. But the thing that I realize is that as I'm loved, so fully, I'm freed up to give myself away. And I'm freed up to make those sacrifices and not worry about it. The, one of the greatest expressions I've experienced of, in my life of God's love has been through my wife. And it's because she's focused on my good in everything. I mean, not perfectly, not perfectly, but she's focused on my good. And so I don't have to self-protect. I don't have to self-preserve. She is focused on my good, and I make the sacrifices that I make knowing that she's not going to just leave me out to dry. She's not going to leave me by the curb. She's actively pursuing what's good for me, and so I can be freed up to give of, of myself out of love for her. Guys, this is a small, imperfect example of what is immensely, infinitely true of you and God the Father. 
he loves you more than you can ever fathom. And he has a plan for your good. You're freed up to give yourself up. You don't have to worry about protecting yourself. You don't have to worry about preserving yourself. I'm not saying do crazy things. I'm not saying just go overseas and throw your life away without any thought. I'm saying follow the call of God. And when it calls you into a difficult and dark place, when it calls you through the valley of suffering, trust him. He loves you. You are freed up to give yourself away because you know that God is for you and God is good. And nothing is ever going to change that. Another thing, just as an encouragement, is to think about the, the king who's blazed the path for you. It's easy to read these verses and to immediately have this feeling of, well, Jesus is this spiritual elite who's high away and removed from me, who's aloof, and he's calling his people to go and die and sacrifice their lives for him. That totally forgets the end of the story for Jesus at the end of the book of Mark. He is the one who walked through this path first. He is the one who blazed the trail for you and for me. One example that I think of on a human level that just encourages me, uh, I like war movies, um, and uh, Braveheart has always been one that just gets me. I don't know why. It just gets me every time. Um, and I think one of the things that gets me about it is the character of William Wallace. Like you look at the way that the leaders wage war, and it's like this. They have their people lined up on the front lines. They might give somewhat of a stirring, rousing speech, but then basically they slap the butts of the horses of the people in front of them and say, go die for your king and your country. That's what kings do. That's what worldly rulers do. They watch their men go out to battle on their behalf and die and spill their blood for them. But William Wallace was a different kind of guy. He wasn't a king, he wasn't a ruler, but he acted like a good king and a good ruler. And he would stand before his men. He would tell them, this is the day that you might die, but you would do it on behalf of freedom and peace in our country. And then he turns around, and instead of slapping the butts of the horses of the people in front of him, he rides out first, and he leads the charge. I was watching something else the other day. There was another war movie, Banner Brothers, and these guys were set in a trench overnight. They knew that the enemy was ahead of them. There was, they didn't know how many, but they knew there was a lot, and they were stuck in this spot. And so they waited the night out. They're sitting in the trench, and then the next morning... Their leader, a guy named Dick Winters, who's actually a real man who did this, told them, we're going to do a charge. We're going to run across this basically football field, like a wide open space over the hill and attack the enemy on the other side, of which we have no clue how many of their numbers are. And I'm going to lead that charge. And so he takes a smoke grenade, he throws it out, and about 20 seconds pass, and he's like hauling it down the field almost all the way through by the time his men start to get up and follow him. And he crosses the hill, and he actually begins to fire on the enemy before any of his men are standing next to him, fully willing to lay down his life. That, to me, I mean, that's a human. And Jesus has done so much more. Jesus didn't just lead the charge. He said, you stand back, and I'm going to go. I'm going to go for you on your behalf. And then only after that, Am I going to beckon you to follow the path that I've taken myself? 
I'm going to empower you to walk in it, and I'll be with you all the way through. He's not a high, aloof king who's calling you to sacrifice your life for nothing. He has walked that path. He has achieved the victory for you. And he stands at the other end saying, it's done. I've done it for you. Now come follow me. I'll help you on the way. And then finally, I just want to remind you guys, this is not simply a call to death. It's a call ultimately to life through death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a German pastor from a ways back. And he's famous for a lot of things, but he's famous for one saying in particular. He says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That dying to yourself, even dying physically, which is what Bonhoeffer did himself, is a part of following Jesus. And I would say, yes, that's true, but that's only half the picture. Jesus doesn't simply call people to the goal of death itself. He calls people to the goal of life, of glory, of peace and renewal. And he makes it clear that the, the way to get there is through the pathway of suffering and death. And so I don't know what that looks like specifically for you in your life. I can't even begin to explain the particular nuanced ways that this might work out for you. But I want you to focus on the example of Jesus, the one who at the end is victorious, the one who at the end is standing in glory, who does have the favor of the Father, who will reign in fullness upon the, king, upon the earth in God's kingdom. And he's calling you to the exact same things, but he's blazed the trail through the valley of darkness for you. And he's calling you to follow him, to walk the path that he's walked. I couldn't get Psalm 23 out of my mind whenever I was preparing for this. I began to think about what it looks like to follow the good shepherd and to appreciate his blessings, to receive good things from him, but then also go through difficult and dark times. And I, I just couldn't get Psalm 23 out of my mind. So I just want to close with this. Sorry, guys. I'm just, uh, I did not expect to leave this. Uh, flip open to Psalm 23. And I'm going to close with this and pray over us. I need one tissue. Psalm 23. Okay. For you church folks, this is familiar. For those of you who this is new, this is a psalm of a king named David in the Old Testament who was an expert at giving praise to God in the psalms. And this is a very, very common one that many people have memorized. You might recognize some of the wording. I want you to think about a thankful sheep in a flock praising the good things about his shepherd, okay? Take a look at this with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's a good shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is in the valley of death. Surely 
goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice how the shepherd doesn't go around the valley of the shadow of death. Notice how the shepherd doesn't come up to the valley and say, oh, we made a wrong turn, let's turn back and head this way. The shepherd leads through the valley. And it's in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death that the sheep says, you were good, you care for me, even in the darkest of places and the most difficult of times. Jesus is calling you to follow him. That's leading to life, to glory, to peace, to joy, to renewal, all those good things. And on the way, we will experience difficulty. We will be ridiculed. We will be shamed. Some of us will face threats for following the Lord Jesus. But he is a good shepherd, and he cares for his sheep, and he walks with them through the difficult and dark times. Don't let it be a surprise whenever those times come up. 